Good afternoon and welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. I am Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. Joe Works is either, he is with us right there. Hello, Joe. Hey, Jeff. How are you today? Good and ready to go into Acts chapter four and maybe five. And we, I think you mentioned we are ready to start about verse five, right? I believe so. I think we left uh, the... Um... <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Hang You're on. still in practice session. You're still in practice session. <laughs> Let's try this again. All right. So this is Jeff Smelser. I'm in Exton, Pennsylvania. And if you heard that, you're probably watching on Facebook. If you didn't hear anything until just now, then we'll pretend nothing happened until just now. Um, and we are going to be looking at the book of Acts today. And we're going to be in Acts chapter four, maybe Acts chapter five. Hi, Joe. Hey, uh, yeah. So we left Peter and John in prison, and uh, we need to uh, get them out. Um, uh, we've we've been gone a week, but uh, they were only uh, in the uh, in the jail overnight, um, and so we're ready to start be because they were such uh, criminals. Uh, the uh, the crimes against humanity uh, were were terrible, right? Oh my, they had actually preached. Yeah, and and, and, and healed a man. Um, healed a man, and then they started talking about the resurrection, and that's what they that's what upset the the, the Sadducees in particular. Right, exactly. So uh Peter and John are thrown into prison, but the result of the preaching has uh caused the number of the saved to uh, men, at least, uh, to reach 5,000, chapter 4 and verse 4. So we go from the 120 in Acts 1 to 3,000 in Acts 2 to now 5,000 in Acts 4 uh, to 5,000 in Acts 4 and verse 4. It, we're still in the very beginning of the spread of the gospel, and geographically, it's not spreading. Uh, it's right here in Jerusalem. Jesus had said, begin in Jerusalem, and uh, then it would spread out. Right now, um, they're still in Jerusalem, and you've got, uh, just counting the men, as you mentioned, 5,000 believers, um, and it's going to be this way up until we get to Acts chapter 8, and in Acts chapter 8, as a result of persecution, the church that has just been in Jerusalem is going to be dispersed, and the gospel will spread throughout the world. All right, so is that where we're ready to start into verse 5? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Well, five to Five to 12, maybe? Okay. It came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and the elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to the helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, they, they asked the question, uh, in what name, by what power have you done this? And they're referring to the fact that they'd healed this crippled man. But that, that 
that really is not their, I, th I think that if they had just healed the crippled man and gone on their way without opening their mouths about the resurrection, these Sadducees and the chief priests would not have been particularly interested in this. Right, right. Yeah, it, it, both. That, that's right. It, it's not just the healing. That's what the, it has sparked the interest in people listening to Peter and John that then brought the accusations from Peter and John upon the people dwelling in Jerusalem for having cried out. But their question, their question was the right question. By, by what power and what name have you done this? Yeah. And they go on to say, in the name of Jesus, but he doesn't stop there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and while it's the right question, it is almost certainly the wrong tone. Would you not agree? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, it sounds pretty similar to what uh, these very same people had said to Jesus uh, back in Matthew 21, for example, by what authority are you doing these things? Right. Um, you know, and, and again, they're really, they're not asking by what authority because they think they are the authority. That's it, the problem. It's, it's really more of a, a, an indictment saying you haven't done this by our name you haven't done this by our authority yeah. uh, because they thought that they were in charge so so then peter says uh, he says well done it in the name of jesus whom you crucified god raised him from the dead it's, and in him this man stands here whole and then he says jesus is the stone which you the builders rejected what's peter talking about there what building and in what sense are the chief priests and the sadducees the builders and so on yeah, again, maybe thinking back to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, that Jesus is uh, uh, that, that the church is going to be built upon Christ. Uh, it's a quote from Psalm 118, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, that whole that that section of Psalm 118 is used multiple times in connection to uh, to Jesus. Uh, they're he, they're quoting here from verse 22, or and it's not an exact quote, but um, uh, he they're. Peter is making it very personal. The quote is the stone which the builders rejected, and Peter says which uh, which was rejected by you builders. Um, and so he makes it very clear it's being fulfilled in them in Christ and what they've done to Christ. Um, so yeah, going back to Psalm one eighteen, I'm just going to read through starting in verse twenty two. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So. Remember the idea of the house of God, the physical house of God in the Old Testament, the temple. And of course, Jesus said, I, I come to build my church. He, his church is a temple. In Ephesians chapter 2, is described as uh, a dwelling place of God in the spirit, a, a holy temple. First Peter chapter 1, uh, no, First Peter chapter 2, uh, the first few verses there talks about God's people as living stones built up as a spiritual house. And so this concept represented in the Old Testament of, of God dwelling in the midst of his people, it was represented in the Old Testament by a physical structure. But the reality now is the spiritual structure, the, the house of God, the church of Jesus Christ, and, and God's people are that house. And so in the 118th Psalm, it talks about a stone which the builders rejected having become the chief cornerstone. So if you think about the Jews and through the history of the Jews, their priesthood, their sacrifices, their prophets that talk about the coming Messiah, um, even just the, the nation of Israel itself for in God's dealings with the nation foreshadowed 
God's dealing with his son, the Messiah, the Christ. And so their history was part of the process of building this temple, of leading up to this house of God, the ultimate house of God. But they themselves reject the Messiah when he comes. He's the chief cornerstone. But even though they reject him as, the, as a stone, God makes him the chief cornerstone. Uh, and then, Joe, let's just go on through this psalm just a little bit more. Do you have the psalm open? Uh, I did, and then I closed it. I, I, I got to uh, go ahead. Yeah. Verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. That expression is what underlies the, the Hebrew Hosanna, or the, the Hebrew Hosanna is in this expression. Right. And that's what the Jews were crying out when Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. They connected this psalm with the coming Messiah. And now Peter quotes this psalm or alludes to this psalm and says, you, you crucified Jesus, and in doing so, you're fulfilling this passage. You're the builders, and you've rejected the stone. Right. Yeah, exactly. Maybe just a couple of references for those that are uh, listening in. Matthew 21 and verse 9, the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so there's that idea of the Hosanna that they're crying out. And then Jesus himself referenced Psalm 118 later on in that same chapter in the parable of the wicked vine dressers um, uh, and uh, mentioned the, the scripture uh, from Psalm 118 down in Matthew 21, 42. So um, remind me what what remind me of that. Um, uh, so where the. Um, uh, uh, yeah, the, the, I see it. Yeah, the, the vine dressers are planning to take over they reject the owner they reject the servants he said he says i'll send the son they'll re they'll surely they'll respect him they don't they kill the son thinking they're going to receive the vineyard for themselves but they're going to be cast out and the vineyard given to others um mm -hmm. all right yeah. great so it's kind of interesting jesus had told them psalm 118 right before the crucifixion and now Peter is reminding them, and you could almost hear these words echoing. Uh, you know, if you can imagine yourself being these chief priests and Sadducees, uh, wow, this is what Jesus said to us just a couple of days before we killed him. Yeah, yeah. So then after Peter says that he has been made the head of the corner, then he, he makes this statement in verse 12, in none other is there salvation, for neither is there any other name under heaven that is given among men wherein we must be saved. You know, Jesus has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Uh, Jesus is the only means that we have of being reconciled to God. And so that's what Peter says here to, to this audience. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'll uh, appeal to your uh, Greek knowledge here. Is there some connection between at the end of verse 9 and at the end of verse 12, is there perhaps a play on words there? Uh, by what means this man has been made well? And uh, then by which we must be saved? I, I'm, I'm recalling, and I did not go back and look at this. I should have earlier. Uh, I was thinking that there was a connection between the, those Greek words there. Uh, okay. Well, there actually is. When in verse 9, it says, um, in which this uh, is is made well or is 
however your translation says it, it is the same verb, um, sozo, which is translated saved later on in verse 12. Um, I had not remembered that. Good call. Good catch. Well, it, it's just kind of interesting to see their, their play on words. This guy was healed. He was made well. He was made whole. He was saved physically. And it's in Jesus that we find salvation. Um, and so, again, the physical miracles that took place during Jesus's time, I think you have similar language even in the woman that had the hemorrhage for 12 years. Um, okay. You know, she was made well. Um, uh, and then so you, you sort of have this idea of, of, of being well, being saved, uh, physically foreshadowing or, or being a, uh, an image of the spiritual salvation. So, so Peter essentially says, uh, look, um, it's because it's by the name of Jesus Christ that this guy has been, let's just pick whether you want to say saved or made well. It's, it's by the power of Jesus Christ that this guy has been saved from his lameness. Right. And, and there is no other name which we can be saved through. Like, we need to be saved. Yeah. And the problem is these people don't understand they need to be saved. They don't understand. They're, they're not crippled. What they don't understand is they're lost in their sins. Yes, yes. And, and, and certainly the, the pronouns in verse 10, you crucified, God raised. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 there's, a, there's a battle or there's a, a, there, there was a, a contrast given there. This has to be, uh, you know, quite piercing uh, for them to, to hear this accusation so, so personally. In verse 6, it mentions that the high priest, Annas, was there, and Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas was the father-in-law of the high priest, if I'm remembering right. correctly. Yeah, I think that's right. Caiaphas had a servant named Malchus. Uh, Malchus is the guy, when Jesus, the night he was betrayed, was in the garden, and, and he's arrested. Um, when the mob came for Jesus, Malchus, the servant of Caiaphas, was there, and Peter had lopped off his ear with a sword boldly attacking the servant of the high priest. And then a little bit later on that night, Peter ends up denying the Lord three times. He seems to lose his courage. Right. And so it's interesting now, here's this man who lost his courage and denied the Lord three times, and he's standing before the powerful master of the slave whom Peter himself had attacked with a sword. And you might think he'd be especially fearful here, but he's not. And, and again, uh, the, the gospel account draws that very significance out. In John 18, you have that story told of Simon Peter and Malchus in John 18, 10, and 11. And then right after that, we have the description of these high priests in verse 13. They led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Okay. Yeah. And, and of course, what's happened between then and now is, is the resurrection of Jesus yeah. and the Holy Spirit having come upon the apostles in Acts 2. So Peter's empowered now. Yeah, yeah. And that, that, the point that you're making, I think, is we have to, to weave that into our image of this story here. This is not a man who's cowering down to a servant girl's identification of him. As he did um, earlier. Yeah. yeah, you know, this is just so impressive. The, it's what the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection does this. It gives courage and hope. So I talked to, a, a, I mentioned just briefly to you a few minutes ago, I didn't have time to tell you the whole thing, but I talked to you about a friend of mine mm -hmm. um, who has been a, a child of God for many years, 
and he has just after multiple surgeries trying to deal with cancer he's just come to the point where he said no more and he is in hospice care now and um he he, he knows this life is 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 over for him but he he faced it with good cheer um he he cracked a joke when i first got with him on the phone and he sounds very upbeat and optimistic um why can he be that way it's because of the power of the resurrection of jesus and the assurance that the god who raised jesus from the dead can and will raise those who are in christ from the dead and grant them life eternal and so you've mentioned i've mentioned as we go through the book of acts we're going to constantly see the resurrection being the key to the preaching and that's because it, it's it's the power paul will say in first corinthians 5 if the dead are not raised, Christ was not raised, and if Christ was not raised, then we have all men most pitiable. This is all pointless. Right. But what makes it not pointless is the resurrection is is true. Amen. Amen. And, and so just your your point there of seeing that boldness of, of Peter is what leads to the very next section as well, right? Right. Let's go there. 13 to 22? Yeah, I'll read a little bit here. Okay. Well, now, when they beheld the boldness of Peter and John, the very thing we were just talking about, and had perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, remember, these were fishermen whose occupation was to catch fish in the Sea of Galilee, not particularly educated men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man that was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. So they can't very well say, well, you didn't do any miracle. There's the guy right there, and he's obviously not crippled now. Wouldn't you, you know, this this is the every defense attorney's dream. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, um, this is the opposite of the smoking gun. Um, uh, this is clearly evidence, uh, undeniable. So when they had commanded them to go outside, so they said, Peter and John, you guys step out. We need to talk amongst ourselves a little bit here. They commanded them to go outside of the council, and they conferring among uh, themselves, saying, what shall we do to these men? For well, then indeed a notable miracle has been wrought through them is manifest to all that dwell in Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. That's a little naive. They, they know everybody's heard of this, so we can't speak about it, but we can at least keep it from spreading further if we just tell them don't talk about it anymore. <laughs> if Peter and John don't talk about it, everybody else is going to. I mean, the, the guy's going to walk out of court here in a little bit. The, the crippled um, man is going to walk out. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, you know, they, they, I, you know, you might think, well, they could have just gone ahead and killed the crippled man, and that might seem like a bizarre thing to say. But when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, that's what some of the enemies of Jesus want to do. Let's let's kill Lazarus. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Um, they they are befuddled. They they do not know what what to do with this situation, and so well, let's just don't talk about it anymore. <laughs> so verse eighteen, they call them and charge them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it's right in the sight of God to hearken unto you rather than unto God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we saw and heard. And they, the council, when they had further threatened them, let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. 
for all men glorified God for that which was done. And then Luke gives us a final uh, commentary on the man who was healed. He says, the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was wrought. Well, he'd been crippled from his from birth. So he's been a cripple for 40 years and now he's able to walk. Yeah, just absolutely amazing to, to think about how this is, you know, th this has caused more growth of uh, the, the amongst the followers. It has put the leadership on their heels and uh, it has given more courage to uh, the apostles uh, to continue speaking. So then we so then Peter and John come back. Verse twenty three says their own company. So that would be the disciples, right? And being let go, they come to their own company and reported all that the chief priest and the elders said unto them. And they, the disciples, when they heard it, lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, "O Lord, Thou that didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that in them is." We may have, I'm going to read through this the way this, this version reads, and, and then you compare it in yours. Verse 25, who by the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, thy servant, did say, and then they quote from the second Psalm, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves in array, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then they go ahead, and we'll talk about this, they go ahead and make application of that Psalm to Herod and Pilate as rulers who set themselves against God. And of course, God's will prevails. There's several things we want to talk about here. Where do you want to start? Well, maybe just make a, a quick, uh, and, and you you began the, the connection there. So there's four groups that are talked about in Psalm 2, the passage that is quoted here. Um, uh, the New King James says, nations, yours said Gentiles. Uh, that's That's helpful. That's clearer even. So you have the Gentiles, you have the people, I believe we're talking about the people of Israel then, and then you have kings and rulers. And then in verse 27, you have this inspired commentary of those four groups. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, there's a king, Pontius Pilate, there's a ruler, with the Gentiles and with the people of Israel were gathered together. Yeah. And so here is the, the sum total of the opposition. And, and really it's just saying everybody, was against Jesus um, uh, to, to crucify him, but it was actually God's purpose that was being fulfilled, verse 28, getting a little bit ahead of ourselves there. So, so this is, there's a lot, of, a lot here that is interesting to me. Uh, one is that they, they quote this psalm, it seems in unison, um, but let's go back and look at the psalm, and, and this is Psalm 2, and, and then, then after we look at the psalm, then let's come back to this text here, if we could. So we go back to Psalm 2, and it starts out, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Now, mine says a vain thing. What does yours say? It says the same thing. What's vain. a vain thing? Uh, so the, I have a marginal reference that mentions a worthless or empty. Yeah. And, and then he describes what it is that's vain. Verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So there was this concept in the Old Testament of the Lord's anointed. When Saul was king over Israel, he had been anointed with oil as an indication he's the one that God has chosen to be king. David would not lift his hand against Saul, even though Saul was attacking David, because David said, he's the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. And that expression, anointed, came to be associated with 
the idea of the one whom God is ultimately going to send as the king, the, and so the Messiah, the word Messiah comes from the Hebrew expression that means anointed one. And uh, so so the, the question throughout Jesus' time on earth when he was preaching was, is he the anointed one? Is he the Messiah? In Greek, that's, is he the Christ or Christos? And so that, the Christ is not his last name. It's it's Messiah. It's the anointed one. Well, here in the psalm, it says the peoples are devising a vain thing, an empty, pointless thing. What are they doing? They're taking their stand against the Lord and his anointed, the one he's chosen to be his Messiah. And what are they saying? Verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Who's saying that? Those those four groups that we just talked about. Yeah, mm -hmm. the people who are imagining a vain thing. The vain thing is they think they can resist God's will and they can throw off God's constraints, mm -hmm. right? Right. That, that's vain. That's pointless. And God, I love I love the description of God's response in verse four. <laughs> it, it, it's like watching some some little children that think that they're going to knock their uncle down or something like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's just looking down and. This is foolishness. It's like I always picture him standing there with his long arm on the forehead of the little top, the little type who's trying to swing at him, and the guy cannot even reach him. You know, it's exactly. Just... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it calls to mind the Tower of Babel and and other situations where individuals thought that they were going to uh, uh, undo God's will. And the way it expresses it here in verse four is, "He who sits in the heavens laughs; the Lord scoffs at them." But there's also anger, verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. And then here's what God says, verse 6. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So God says, I've done what I've done. You can't do anything about it. I've established my king. By the way, there are a lot of people who think that Jesus doesn't become king until sometime in the future when he comes back and sets up a throne in Jerusalem. No, Peter and the disciples here in Acts 4, they're quoting this psalm because they understand this psalm is applicable right then. Jesus is now king. Right. And those who are opposing him are imagining a vain thing. Yeah. Verse 7 of Psalm 2. Um, then... I would take starting verse seven, this is the, the Messiah speaking now. This is the anointed one who speaks. Yes. And what yes. he says is, I will surely tell of the, of the decree of Yahweh, the Lord. He, Yahweh, said to me, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. And so, so that's, we, I didn't read the last three verses of the psalm, but that's the background. And so now Peter and John escape the clutches of the Sadducees and the chief priests, and they come back to the disciples, tell them everything that's happened. And it's interesting that in verse 24, it says, they, when they heard it, lifted up their voice to God with one accord. And they said, O Lord, thou that didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, thy servant, did say, and then they quote this psalm, Psalm 2. And then they make application to Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, as you said, the four groups. How do you think they did that? In, do you think it was in unison? Uh, may very well have been. Uh, it could have been a chant of some sort that they had uh, uh, incorporated from the psalms. That would have been a common thing. 
Yeah, I, the, I, I don't know if it's necessarily in Psalm two, but they certainly did that with Psalms. Mm -hmm. So it could be, it could be uh, by the Holy Spirit. They all say this in unison. It could be that somebody begins the connection to Psalm two, and everybody—it's a passage that they sang regularly in their in their assemblies, and everybody joined in. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. What what a beautiful image. E either way it goes, what a beautiful image that is. And and at least for me. I'm I'm mindful of other passages like Daniel 2, where Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler, has determined to kill all of the wise men. Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah hear about that, and they gather together in unison or, or in unity and, and pray to God. You know, when there is this, uh, this sense of danger and, uh, and threat, God's people gather with more of God's people and uh, request from God the assistance that is desperately needed. You know, uh, we'll, we'll see that later on in, in Acts 12 as well, the church gathering together on Peter's behalf. But may, maybe it's just a good thing for us to remember when we are facing great trials, don't just take it to God, take it to your brethren and take it to God together is a pretty good pattern that we have. I'm not saying it's the only way to do it, but, but it is certainly uh, an effective way. Gather together with other holy people to pray to God. Now, in this quotation, um, does your Bible say in verse 25, does it say, uh, who by the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, thy servant did say? Mine says, who by the mouth of your servant David have said. It doesn't have the Holy Spirit, but right. there's, a, again, a marginal reference for a textual question there. Right. So you, you have, I think that's the new King James you have there. Correct, correct. Okay. So that's right. And it's, it's one that is, it's, it's difficult to know what the, the actual reading here is, whether that phrase by the Holy Spirit is here or not. Um, if it's here, then this would be another text, uh, attesting to the fact that the, the people recognized the Psalms and the Old Testament scriptures generally, really, were not just the product of human minds. People wrote what the Holy Spirit gave them to write. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's not here, the book of Hebrews does the same thing in quoting Jeremiah and just attributes it to the Holy Spirit, um, so, which is important. I think I think that's significant. Um, but I, I, for our, our listeners, some of our listeners use the King James and the New King James. And while mine was had the words by the Holy Spirit, I knew some translations didn't. So I wanted to make note of that. And, and we see the Holy Spirit is certainly involved in this event at the end of this section in verse 31, uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So again, that doesn't prove uh, whether it should be there or not in, uh, in verse 25, but certainly the Holy Spirit is involved in uh, all of these things. Um, if you might even recall when Peter and John spoke, they were identified as untrained, uneducated right. men why where did they get this power well jesus told them when you are drugged before the magistrates and the rulers don't worry beforehand what to say because it will be given to you in that time what to say and, and, and so i think it's easy to imagine the holy spirit guiding these words and, and thoughts for them yeah so all right pick it up in, in verse 27 we've talked a little bit about verse 27 but let's see the application they make of this psalm to their present situation for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, 
look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So our Herod and, and Pontius Pilate, good guys or bad guys? Uh, on the one hand, it seems like they're the ones imagining a vain thing and resisting the Lord and, and, and his anointed one. But Joe, in verse 28, it says they did what God foreordained to come to pass. And, and, and the Bible is filled with examples of people accomplishing God's will, even as they seek to resist him. Um, uh, for their own, uh, you know, uh, foolish and selfish purposes. Uh, if you're familiar with the story of Jehu, he's kind of, to me, the, uh, the, the, the classic example of somebody who, who does exactly what God wanted him to do, but his is politically and selfishly motivated in exterminating the, the house of Ahab. Or Pharaoh, who, who was resisting God's will, and and yet the Bible says God raised him up for that very purpose, yeah. So yeah, that absolutely. God could God could multiply his signs and demonstrate his power in the eyes of of all the nations. Right, right. So so, so again, you you get this image of people trying to resist God, God laughing at them, saying, "Oh, you're you're following right into you know this is this is going to accomplish what I had willed for it to do." God sets people in place, knowing their hearts, knowing their intent, not forcing them but knowing their intentions and uh, thereby accomplishing what he willed for it to do. We, we talked about that, that sense of uh, uh, determination by, by God beforehand. And, yeah. And uh, Judas violate our free will. Yeah, exactly. And, and so then um, all the, the, then you have the manifestation of the Holy spirit the place was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy spirit. They spoke the word of God with boldness, anything up through verse 31 else, anything else we need to touch on? Well, again, they prayed for boldness, verse 29, and then the God, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they went out and preached with boldness. You know, we're often told, be careful what you pray for, uh, but also be careful what you don't pray for. You know, we, we need to pray for things, and God will answer. God will respond. That's uh, what good. a beautiful thought here. Uh, Excellent yeah, point. Good. Now, we've still, we still have a problem. Uh, just practically speaking, logistics, daily needs kind of situation, we still have all the church in Jerusalem, and a lot of the church is made up of people who had come for the day of Pentecost from different nations, and they had not come with their jobs and their houses and their everything else. They'd come to stay a few days, and they end up just staying, and so there's still a lot of need, and so in the rest of chapter four, there's a description of how the disciples were meeting those needs, how they were taking care of one another. Yeah. Verse 32. Yep, go ahead. To the, to the end. Uh, now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite 
of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought it, uh, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, all right, they're, they're sharing what they have. Remember, there would be people who were local, people from Judea who would have properties or possessions that they might sell. And they're sharing uh, the, the sale price of these things with one another so that everybody is taken care of. And, you know, God assures us that he will, if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he'll see to it that we have the things that we need. And God can do that multiple ways. But one way he can do it is through our brethren in Christ. Uh, and, and so you see this being accomplished here. But it mentions Joseph, who is surnamed Barnabas here, because this Barnabas is going to be an important character in, in the rest of the book of Acts. So this is our introduction to him, and we see he, he is one of those who is being generous, and he's such a just an encouraging kind of guy that they just gave him a nickname, son of encouragement. Um, Barnabas is what means son of encouragement. Very good, very good. Uh, and maybe just a... Uh... Uh, a, a quick um, uh, application, personal application. Uh, uh, people are listening on on Facebook and and through the Zoom app, and uh, you know, it, it, people offer up words of encouragement. Uh, Brian just offered up uh, some some kind words uh, there, um, and 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 those ideas of offering up encouragement. It's not things like, uh, Jeff, uh, have you lost weight? Um, uh, or, you know, uh, you know that, that's not the kind of superficial encouragement that we're talking about. Um, uh, I, I've come to understand when people ask me if I've lost weight, they're not really implying that they think I have. It's just a way of saying something. Um, but, or maybe it's, why haven't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe an indictment instead. Um, so uh, that's why I switched from glasses to contacts so I could lose weight. Um, <laughs> But, but the idea of encouragement here is so much more than just some superficial compliment. Right. It's, a, it's, a, it's at a spiritual level. If I understand this word from, uh, from Barnabas, son of encouragement, the word was originally the idea of consolation. Um, uh, and so it's connected to, you know, that they were looking for the consolation of Israel in, uh, in the book, the beginning of the book of Luke. Um, uh, and so it, it's a deep spiritual meaning uh, so, behind so, it. So in John 14, when Jesus talks about a comforter who will come, I will send you a comforter. It, it's, it's a related word to this. It's paraclete. And uh, here, it's, it's the Greek word here is paraklesis. And so one would be the comforter and one would be the consolation or the comfort that the comforter gives. So it is that kind of an idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and can you imagine what was he like that the apostles would nickname him that? You know, uh, we, we get all kinds of nicknames uh, through the, the, the course of our life for often for embarrassing things that we've done. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, here, when, when they looked at Barnabas, they said, man, you know, if I didn't know better, I would think your dad was encouragement. And, and that you're, you were born from encouragement. If, if encouragement could be personified, you would be his son. Yeah. That's just incredible. What a, what a goal that is to live our lives in such a way that other people look at us and be like, wow, you're such a source of encouragement. And, and we're going to see that 
play out as we go through the rest of the book of Acts. We're going to see when when other people were doubting Saul's conversion and thinking, well, he may still be a persecutor and he's just here pretending to be a disciple. It's Barnabas who steps up and says, no, I think we can trust him and, and encourages the people there in Jerusalem to receive him. Later on, when uh, Paul and Barnabas are discussing making a trip and John, uh, Paul doesn't want to take John Mark with them. Barnabas is the positive-minded guy. Says no, he'll he'll do it this time. Well, I and and Paul and Barnabas ended up disagreeing about that. So Barnabas took John Mark, the one whom Paul doubted, and they they headed off together to to preach the gospel. And uh, so you see you see Barnabas's character that the apostles recognized when they gave him this nickname. You see that borne out through the yeah. rest of the book of Acts. Yeah. yeah. Another example is when the apostles thought that somebody needed to go preach to the gentiles the gentiles who, who will they send barnabas yeah uh, he because he's going to encourage them and that and, and the text in acts 11 tells us that that's exactly what he did he encouraged them with purpose of heart to continue with the lord a couple of other things just real quickly mentioning here of course the thing that he did was he had a field he sold it brought the money laid it at the apostles feet for it to be used for whomever had need but it also mentions he's a levite and that's kind of interesting. And I've got a little theory, but I won't go into it. But it has to do with the book of Hebrews, which has a lot about Levitical practices in it. <laughs> uh, that, that's, that's an interesting uh, connection to, uh, to consider. Uh, do, you know, so. do you know, if I remember correctly, the earliest attestation that we have coming down to us of the authorship of the book of Hebrews is that it was written by Barnabas. Now, who knows? I'm not. I'm not going to hang my salvation on the truth of that or not. But it's an interesting. It's an interesting thought. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, and then there's this other little observation. He was from Cyprus, a man of Cyprus by race. When he and Paul first go off on their journey, where do they first go after they leave the seaport of Antioch, the city of Seleucus? Where do they first go? To, to the, the island of Cyprus. The, the island of Cyprus. And, yeah. and then when they're going to make a subsequent trip and they end up separating, going separate ways, where does Barnabas go with John Mark? Back to Cyprus. Back to Cyprus. Yeah. Just yeah. little interesting things. All right, let's see. Do we have... You, you kind of get that image of the demon-possessed man that the God, that Jesus told him. He wanted, remember, he wanted to stay in the boat in Mark 5, and Jesus said, no, go to your family and tell them uh, what great things God has done, and how he's had compassion on you. Mm -hmm. Barnabas, Barnabas wants to go back home and tell people. Yeah, good. All right. Well, Joe, we've just got a couple of minutes here, but I guess let's get started into chapter five. We won't well, finish everything. Let, let me mention one thing I, I think is, is, is helpful here, if you don't mind. No, in, in please. Verse, in verse 34, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. Now, uh, again, I'm not at all a Greek scholar. I'm somewhat embarrassed to even bring these things up with, uh, with Jeff here. Um, uh, but that word that's used there for lacked, if I understand it right, is the same word in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to uh, the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, in Deuteronomy 15 in particular, you have questions about taking care of the poor and uh, the, the idea of, of the poor or some translations may say the needy um, in Deuteronomy 15 uh, and in verse 4, except when there may be no poor among you or verse 7, if there is among you a poor man of your brethren within the gates of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother 
Verse 11, for the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore, I command you saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor, uh, to your poor and your needy in your land. Uh, if I understand it right, that's the same word in the Septuagint, Deuteronomy 15, 4, 7, and 11, that's used here where there was nobody poor. There was nobody in need. There was nobody who lacked, the New King James says. But it's the same idea. Um, and I guess what what's helpful for me is to see the continuity of the scriptures. God has always been concerned about taking care of those who were in need. And the Jewish Christians are, are making just a very practical application. When people are in need, we're not going to harden our heart and we're not going to close our hands. We're going to open our hearts and open our hands to help those who are truly in need. What was the reference in Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy 15, okay. verses 4, 7, and 11. All right, That's great. I'll take a look at that. Yeah. All right. Well, Joe, I think that just about gets us to the end of our time today. So next week, we'll pick it up with chapter 5, because what's going to happen in chapter 5 is, after this beautiful picture of all the, the saints providing for one another sacrificially, and Barnabas in particular being mentioned as a man uh, of encouragement, we're going to have somebody... I mean, that's pretty cool if you get singled out as being a generous, encouraging kind of person. Yeah. We're going to meet a couple of people who want to get that kind of credit, but they want to get credit for more than they actually do. Exactly. And so we'll we'll talk about that next time. Of course, that's Ananias and Sapphira, right? Very good. All right. Thank you all for listening, and we hope you'll tune in again next week. See you later, Joe.